Well, uh, good evening. Please turn back in your Bibles to uh, the passage we read in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first uh, 16 verses of, of that passage that we read. And these are probably, for many of us, familiar verses. Uh, and I think it's fair to say packed with truth. Uh, reading them is almost a sermon in itself. But my hope is that by spending time uh, thinking about them, we can understand uh, more of what they're saying to us, and particularly what our response should be. But before getting into the passage, I want us to just think a bit about the context and sort of background to uh, the passage. Uh, I expect you know that the uh, book of Philippians is a letter. It's a letter of Paul the Apostle to the church in Philippi. It was a church that he helped to establish during his missionary journeys. And uh, Paul was writing the letter while he was in prison in Rome. Uh, and we can see as we uh, read the letter that it's a, a church, it's a very close relationship. Paul has a, a very close relationship with this church. The tone in the letter is one of, is full of warm encouragement uh, for the Philippians. Uh, and uh, we see that right from the beginning of chapter one, although he was, his circumstances were, were far from what he would have wanted, you know, Paul was an activist. He loved to be out working hard, spreading the gospel. Here he was confined in prison in Rome. But despite that, the letter is full of joy. He's full of joy to hear that the gospel is making progress in Philippi. Uh, and we see that as a major theme through the letter, one of joy from Paul. But we also see alongside that that unity in the church is a strong theme. And that's another thing that comes out uh, throughout the book. Uh, for example, in chapter 1, verse 27, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in the manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Paul wanted to ensure that they were working together, that they had a shared purpose, uh, and that they were striving for the spread of the gospel together. That was, that was to be their shared purpose. Uh, and so that they could resist attack, as he goes on to say in the next few verses. So that really brings us to chapter 2, the passage that we're looking at this evening. And in terms of the overall theme of the passage, it's quite straightforward. It's summed up nicely by verse 5, chapter 2 and verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And so the aim of this message this evening is really to get you to see the importance of that, to get you to see the importance of emulating Christ and his attitude. That's it, really. It's quite simple. But I guess seeing the importance of it isn't enough. Uh, I also hope that you'll be stirred to do it, to put it into practice, and to seek in the coming days to imitate Christ more and more. So we're going to spend a bit of time getting into the detail, and, and we're going to see why having the attitude of Christ is worthwhile. Uh, and we're also going to see something of, how, hopefully, how it should be done. And we get both of those from the different sections of this chapter 2. Firstly, if we look at verses 1 to 4, we see something of how we should do this at a high level. And it's all about how we relate to each other, particularly verse 2 in seeking to be unified. Paul says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. It's really just several ways of saying the thing, saying the same thing, be unified. And that in itself is a continuation 
of 1 verse 27, the verse that we read a moment ago. It's really just the same, saying the same thing and the same exhortation to the Philippians. And Paul makes the point here in chapter 2 that this should flow out of uh, who we are. It should be a result of our identity. Verse 1, he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, uh, and so on, then do this, he's saying. It should come as a result of being saved. But we've seen before uh, that 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 verse 1 is is perhaps better actually translated, rather than it being a conditional kind of if statement, a better translation would really be since you have these things, since you have encouragement from being united with Christ and comfort from his love, then do this. And that's really, again, showing us that these things should come as a result of being saved. So that's kind of at a very very brief and high level a summary of, of how we should do this, seek to be unified together, how we should seek to have the attitude of Christ. Uh, we should focus on being like-minded. But secondly, why should we seek to emulate Christ? Why is this worthwhile and important? Well, two reasons, really. One is, is very simple, that, that by uh, following someone else's example is, is a great way to learn. You know, you'll know this from personal experience. I'm sure there are different ways to learn, aren't there? One is that we can uh, learn by trial and error. You know, we just kind of learn by trying something and seeing how we get on. But uh, I'm sure you know that that's not always very effective for something that doesn't come very naturally to us. Or you might learn by reading a book, you know, and reading from somebody, who, somebody who's written it down and given you instructions in a book. But it still relies on having a teacher, doesn't it? Somebody to write the book in the first place. And I suppose what I'm saying is that there's really no substitute for having a good example to follow, for having somebody to act as a teacher or role model, someone to copy. And of course, Jesus' life was perfect in every way. So what better example to aspire to and to follow? So being told to have the same attitude as him is a very good way to proceed. But the second reason why this is important, I think, is found in those verses 6 to 11. Uh, the verses there, 6 to 11 of chapter 2, which tell us all about Jesus firstly being humbled and then him being exalted. And um, I'd say, you know, if, if you're not stirred by these verses towards praise and worship, then I would encourage you to keep reading them and, and to pray that you would be stirred <laughs> because they're a glorious reminder of what the Son of God went through on our behalf. And uh, we know, don't we, that Paul isn't one to miss an opportunity to... Uh, to praise Christ and bring a praise and glory to him. Uh, and here we see another instance of him exalting the Lord Jesus. So we see here Jesus' humbling taking place in stages there from verse 6 onwards. We see him gradually kind of being humbled more and more. Uh, it says that he made himself nothing, verse 7, took on the nature of a servant. He became a human. He humbled himself and died. And not just any old death, but a death on a cross indicating the curse that he was under. It's worth noticing as well that these are all things that Jesus did. You know, it says Jesus did this, he did that. But then verse 9 onwards tell us what God the Father did um, in response to Jesus' obedience and humbling of himself. Verse 9 says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. Uh, and he gave him the name which is above every other name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Well, this cycle of, of humbling and exaltation was necessary to achieve 
redemption. It was necessary for Jesus to be humbled and to become a curse in order to pay the penalty for sin. And it was necessary for him to be exalted in order to demonstrate his power over death and his restoration, his lordship over the universe. But I think if we, if we stop there and think about it only in those terms, we're missing something because this, this humbling and exaltation uh, is also important because, well, it wasn't just about the practicality of achieving redemption. It was also a pattern for every believer. You know, Matthew 23 tells us, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So those who recognize their sin and come in humble contrition to God will at the last day be exalted along with Christ. So him going through this cycle first is uh, a pattern for all believers. So Paul's saying here, have that attitude, copy the attitude of Christ who gave up everything for you. That's the sort of humble interaction you should have with each other, he's saying. And that's what it means to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, as we see there in 1 verse 27. So that's the, the overall theme of this passage that we're looking at. And I suppose up until now, I've been talking to Christian believers, and that will continue to be the theme, continue to be the, the case for most of this sermon. You know, it's directed at those who've been saved from their sin through faith in the Lord Jesus and are part of the church in a worldwide sense. The people Paul was writing his letter to were believers, so it's natural that the lessons be applied in the same way today. Now, I don't know everybody here, you know, maybe you're not in that situation. Maybe you've never asked God to forgive your sins. So maybe you're wondering how this applies to you. Well, if that is you, then uh, I'd encourage you, please don't switch off. Don't start uh, uh, checking your messages uh, and uh, continue to stay tuned. And please come and speak to one of us. Speak to me afterwards or speak to one of the other elders. And we'd love to explain how you can be saved and how you can, how you can become part of the church. Uh, it's very important, critical. Uh, there's nothing more important. <laughs> it's very important that you, you do that. So, okay, so we've seen the, the sort of overall theme of the passage. Now let's look into a bit of the detail of how we are to have the attitude of Christ. And for this, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through uh, verse 16 in uh, five sections and five points. The first one of which is work out in verse 12. Work out. And this has nothing to do with the gym uh, or going to uh, try and get a six pack. Uh, it says, continue to work out your salvation. Now, uh, wait a minute, you say. Well, don't we believe in salvation by grace rather than works? Well, yes, we do. Uh, and Paul here isn't meaning work to achieve your salvation, but rather work that results from salvation. Having been saved, this is work that we do, having been saved in order that we might fully experience the benefits of that salvation. If we think, for example, of a newly married couple, I think I remember being told this on my own wedding day, newly married couples are encouraged to work at their marriage. It's recognized that it takes work. So they're already married, but to fully enjoy the relationship and maximize the value of it for both of them, they will need to work at it. And with something as significant as marriage, uh, they'll need to consider and discuss various areas of life, maybe every area of life, and how being married affects it, as opposed to being unmarried as they were previously. 
And the same is true when we're saved. It should affect every area of life. So we need to be continually reviewing, not just when we're first saved, but on an ongoing basis, this area and that of our lives, our home life, our work, our money and possessions, our leisure time, our relationships in the family, our relationships outside. Every area of life, we need to make sure that we are aiming to conduct all our affairs in the light of God's word. That's what it means here, to work out your salvation. But we can notice, I think, two other things about this working. The first is that we are to do it with fear and trembling. Well, what's the best way to understand that phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Does that mean that we have to do everything timidly? Uh, And if it does, then how does that fit with passages like Ephesians 6? You know, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Well, The Bible often talks about fear of God, doesn't it? And that's something that we probably don't know enough of in our time. But rather than it being a fear in the sense of being terrified to approach God, uh, I think it's more a recognition of our own weakness, a recognition of the power of temptation. And perhaps above all, perhaps above all, the fear of offending God as our Father. Well, I wonder what kind of relationship you have with your earthly father, or had with your earthly father if he's no longer alive. And I realise I need to be careful of speaking my own father in front of so many people who knew him well. Uh, But one thing I remember was how strongly I felt that I didn't want to offend him or disappoint him. Of course, there were plenty of times when I did just that. Uh, And I remember clearly the shame that went along with it. Now that makes it sound like irresponsible behaviour is all a thing of the past, and if only that was true. Um, But I remember at other times the fear of causing offence definitely guided my actions and kept me out of trouble. Well, I think that's what's being got at here. You know, how much more do we need that with our Heavenly Father? That kind of fear and trembling in order to guide our steps as we work out our salvation. Second, we need to recognise the balance between working out and working in from these verses. On the one hand, we must be working out our salvation, but it goes on in verse 13. Uh, Paul tells us, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So we have working out and we have working in. And we see this balance in many places in the Bible. You know, the, the responsibility that we have, because the working out is for nobody else to do it, makes it clear here that it's our sole duty But we're not on our own. God is at work in us. And, uh, you know, what a, what a comforting thought that is, that He's working to bring about His sovereign purposes through us. And that, that in itself is an encouragement to work ourselves, knowing that God is active. I don't know about you, but one of the, I find one of the biggest incentives or encouragement, uh, is to work alongside someone else who works hard, you know, who's kind of fully involved and throwing themselves into things. That kind of approach rubs off on you, and you feel it's your duty not to let the side down. And uh, I think on a much more significant scale, we can feel that uh, here, you know, knowing that God is at work. It's our responsibility and duty to fulfill our God-given role in working out our salvation. So that's the first directive in this section, work out your salvation. The second thing we're told here is don't grumble, verse 14 It actually puts it in a positive sense, doesn't it? It says, do everything without complaining or arguing 
or in the ESV, do everything without grumbling or disputing. Because it's so easy to grumble, isn't it? I know that I struggle with it and have been challenged as I've been preparing for this, as I've been thinking about these verses. And on the one hand, this can't mean that we are to just be accepting of anything and not discerning. You know, it can't mean that we, we're never allowed to challenge things or disagree or offer alternative viewpoints or constructive criticism. Uh, but when that tips over and becomes complaining and grumbling, that becomes a problem, and, and that's what Paul is warning against here. It might be helpful to think about it in terms of motivation. You know, Grumbling is usually self-centered. But uh, we're reminded in verse 3 that we are to do nothing out of selfish ambition. We are to consider others better than ourselves. That doesn't mean a, a kind of false humility about our own skills and abilities, but it does mean very much valuing each other and considering each other's needs and feelings more than our own. And that, that in itself is pretty challenging. So practically, how, how does this work? You know, when you see something done differently to how you would do it or in inverted commas, the wrong way. You know, perhaps the sermon is a bit longer than you'd like. Or perhaps the choice of songs in a particular service wasn't what you would have chosen. Uh, or perhaps the way a group or activity in the church is organized, you know, is not the way that you would do it if you were in charge. What, what's your default reaction in that situation? Is it to roll your eyes? Is it to make it very clearly that it should be done differently? Uh, or worse still, to grumble to other people who aren't involved? about what you think. And here we're told, you know, not to do that. We're encouraged to rather be self-aware, aware that we are often selfish and motivated by that. And rather than being critical, we need to examine our own hearts and consider what our default reaction is and temper it in order that we learn and grow together in order that we might be more like-minded. Well, what, what could this look like in practice? Well, perhaps we could consider two people in the same church. One of them, if you speak to them, well, you better be prepared for a long conversation because this person isn't backward in coming forward in telling you everything that's wrong in the church, everything that they don't like, how other people wind them up, and they complain at great length and in real detail about how hard life is for them. The second person is different. They have frustrations too. But rather than dwell on that, they make positive, constructive suggestions in a gracious way. And rather than minimizing problems they face personally, they ask for prayer that they'd be able to cope better. And they speak of how they're learning to rely on God in the difficulties and seeing him at work through answered prayer. Well, hopefully you can see the distinction between those two uh, people. And hopefully it's obvious which kind of person is more like what Paul is describing here. We are to do everything without complaining or arguing. So here's a challenge for you as we go into this week. See how long you can go without complaining. <laughs> See how long you can go. And if and, and when, and it probably will be when it happens, then stop and just recognize, you know, I'm complaining. I, I need to stop doing this. <laughs> okay, thirdly, we're told to be different. Be different. Verse 15 so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. The whole emphasis here is on being different to those around us, not just different in an arbitrary way or for its own sake to be unique, 
but by being people who are defined by purity rather than depravity and by being blameless rather than crooked. It's easy to be afraid of standing out, isn't it? Most people want to fit in, I know I do. Uh, And being seen as different for whatever reason can be uncomfortable. Until recently, as Christians, that might have been based on the fear of appearing just a bit strange or old-fashioned or out of touch because of our beliefs. In today's society, it's more sinister and threatening than that, isn't it? Evangelicals now are more likely to be seen, or at least put forward in the media, as extremists, you know, holding views that are described as, as bigoted or out of step with the rest of society. But in spite of that, the directive is still the same. We are to be holy and distinct from the world around us. Those words crooked and depraved are taken from Deuteronomy, where they were used to describe those who turned away from God and worshipped other gods. So this instruction is nothing new for God's people. The Israelites, as God's chosen nation, were called to be different from the nations around us. And of course, the generation of that day was the same in nature as the generation Paul was speaking to in this letter. And it's the same in nature as today's generation, our own generation, crooked and depraved, turning away from God. So this is still very relevant. But as well as being bold enough to stand up and be distinct and uh, distinct in the sense of avoiding sin, this directive is far more um, uh, deep-seated than that. It's more far-reaching, the implications of it. It speaks to what we live for, not just what we believe, but what we prioritize in practical terms, what we put our time, money, and thought into. These things, too, should be different from those around us. So it's good to ask ourselves sometimes, you know, what do people think of me? Do they know I'm a Christian? Do they see a difference in me? If they don't know I'm a Christian, would they be surprised to know that I am? Because perhaps my behavior doesn't match with what they'd expect. Well, those are quite searching questions and ones that are good to to ask ourselves from time to time. Particularly, I think, in the context of this passage, Our distinctiveness is about how our relationships with one another make us distinct. Rather than being individualistic and motivated by selfish ambition, you know, that's all what society is about, isn't it? We are to be different by showing our like-mindedness, our oneness in spirit and purpose. And uh, as others see us in action, they should see that difference in us. At the end of the verse, we've got that analogy to stars that shine in the universe, it makes you think about being surrounded by darkness. And in a sense, we are, you know, society with no acknowledgement of God. And as that contrast increases between us and the world, and we become more out of step, it's like the darkness becomes darker and the stars become brighter, which is when they are more easily seen. So in the days of this coming week, let's think about this instruction to be different and distinct and seek to obey it. Fourthly, we're told here to hold out, verse 16, as you hold out the word of life. And uh, this point reminds us of the centrality of God's word in everything we do. Uh, And that one of the main purposes, perhaps the main purpose of the church, is to hold that word out, to preach the gospel, to make it known, make disciples of all nations in obedience to the Great Commission. So we're not to be unified in in a random purpose or objective. We're doing it so that we might be more effective in the task of spreading the gospel. 
of telling people of their sin and the need to be forgiven through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And it's so that our gospel work might be backed up with evidence to show that what we call the word of life really does bring new life. Credibility is very important, isn't it? And few things are more damaging to the church than when the outside world sees that sees us as no different to anyone else. It undermines the gospel message and uh, suggests that it makes no difference. And we can all point to and think of examples where, from the church, from history, some of it very recent, where prominent leaders have fallen. And we need to be constantly reflecting on our own situation in the light of this passage. Is there evidence of changed lives through the gospel? When outsiders look at us, can they see love and unity and care and humility between us? Those things are very powerful and make the gospel attractive. We are to hold out the word of life. And fifthly, and finally, we are to look forward. Verse 16, Paul says, In order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. It sounds a bit strange at first, doesn't it? Like Paul is going to boast of his achievements when Jesus comes again. Uh, because that's what is meant here by the day of Christ. You know, the second coming, when the dead in Christ will rise, those believers who've died will have their bodies raised to eternal life. Those still alive will go directly into the new heavens and the new earth to be in God's presence forever. That's the perfect kingdom we were hearing about this morning. And it's a wonderful prospect. But the Bible is clear, and Paul is very clear, that it won't be because of anything we've done that we will inherit eternal life. It's all the work of God through his Son and the Holy Spirit. So by boasting, Paul here can only mean that he'll be proud, proud in a good sense. Uh, and I think you know, if the Philippians, what he means is if the Philippians are kept faithful and persevere to the end, Paul will be filled with pride for them, that they've made it and that they're rewarded by passing into eternal life. Well, in the same way, we should look forward to that day with great expectation and joy. We should be praying, your kingdom come. We know that the concept, we know, don't we, that the concept of looking forward is reserved for something that we expect is going to be good. You rarely hear someone say, I'm looking forward to going to the dentist, for example. And conversely, it would be odd not to look forward to something that we know will be good. But perhaps in the busyness of everyday life, we don't actually spend much time anticipating the day of Christ. I know I should do more of that. Or perhaps if Christ came tomorrow, we sometimes worry that there might even be an element of disappointment about things we haven't done or places we haven't been, plans unfulfilled. But I think that that just reflects, and again, I'm speaking to myself here, the limitations of our own minds and our inability to imagine just how wonderful and awesome, awesome in the true sense, it will be to be taken into God's presence. This day of Christ is spoken about in verses 10 to 11, when everyone will realize who he truly is. Everyone will bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But for some, that won't be in believing submission and repentance. And by that time, it will be too late. But they will realize nonetheless and be left in no doubt. So as we close, as the body of Christ here, we seek to emulate his example and seek to have the same attitude as him by being unified together, by working out our salvation 
by doing everything without complaining or arguing, by being different and distinct from those around us, uh, and by holding out the word of life. And let's remember that the day of Christ is what it's all leading up to, and pray for God's help to keep us faithful, so that at the end we might hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant.